Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies. I'm David James Gonzalez, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Geraldo Cadava about his book, Standing on Common Ground, The Making of a Sunbelt Borderland, published by Harvard University Press in 2013. Geraldo Cadava is an assistant professor of history at Northwestern University, specializing in U.S. history with an emphasis on the U.S.-Mexico borderlands. He teaches courses on Latino history, the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, comparative American borderlands, the American West, and the United States since the colonial period. Geraldo's recent book, Standing on Common Ground, won the 2014 Frederick Jackson Turner Award issued by the Organization of American Historians. Geraldo Cadava, welcome to New Books in Latino Studies. Thanks very much for having me, DJ. Of course. I was wondering if you would begin uh, our interview just by saying a few words about yourself. Uh, that is, tell us about where you were raised, where you went to school, and how you became interested in pursuing a career as a historian and a professor. Sure, sure. I um, was born in Tucson, Arizona, and I lived there for the first four or five years of my life, and my mom still lives there, and all of my grandparents and aunts, uncles, and cousins still live in Tucson, so the book I wrote was very much a kind of personal story that related to the place where I uh, still consider home in many ways, even though I left when I was a young kid. Um, then I moved to Irvine, California, actually, where my dad was a graduate student in the English department. And then after that, he got his first job at uh, Princeton University in New Jersey. So I moved to Princeton with him at the beginning of seventh grade. And I, I was kind of a faculty brat for uh, many years um, through high school. And then I went to Dartmouth College for undergrad. Then I received my Ph.D. at Yale University in 2008, and then I've been at Northwestern University ever since. And uh, could you remind me, what were the last couple of things you wanted me to talk about? Yeah, well, tell us, you know, what got you interested in a career oh, in history, right. particularly? Of course, of course, yes. Yeah, the more important things. <laughs> I uh, was a history major at Dartmouth College, and I ended up writing my senior thesis about a Chicano art group called ASCO, um, which means nausea in Spanish. And I worked in Los Angeles during the 1960s, 1970s, and into the mid-1980s. And I had had a kind of long-standing interest in border art and Chicano art. I had written an earlier paper as a sophomore in college about Guillermo Gomez Peña, for a kind of uh, famous border artist. And um, that kind of led me to look into murals and artistic production in Southern California. So during the summer between my junior and senior year, I went out to L.A. to visit my or to uh, begin researching my thesis and to work three days a week at the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, MALGA. Oh, uh-huh. Those were the kind of two things that were vying in my mind for or as, as potential careers. So 
I worked three days a week at Maldef, and then I worked for a couple more days a week um, on my thesis. I spent a lot of time at the Social and Public Art Resource Center, Spark, in Venice Beach, and I worked a lot at the UCLA libraries and uh, really got to do a lot of exciting oral histories with the artists and members of OSCO, so namely Harry Gamboa Jr. and Gronk and Willie Heron and and Patsy Valdez, and um, they kind of really were, were very generous uh, to an undergraduate at Dartmouth College who they had never met before and spent a lot of time with me, shared a lot of materials with me, and uh, the thing that attracted me to their work in the first place was my sense that they represented a kind of counterculture within the counterculture of the Chicano movement, so right, right. they weren't doing a lot of you know, painting corn goddesses or idealistic images of the families. There are, was performance art. It was ephemeral. They focused on um, violence. Uh, they focused on urban issues. And as the artist Gronk kind of, in my mind, famously put it, he, he said that when we walked out of our front doors in Los Angeles, we didn't see any Aztec corn goddesses. So that's not what they focused on. They focused on other issues, and they were kind of talked about as an avant-garde within the Chicano art movement. They were certainly influenced by uh, Dada and a punk aesthetic, so they were doing Chicano art in the era of the Chicano movement and its aftermath, but they were thinking of art and the potential of art in a much different way than other groups that I was familiar with, like uh, East Coast Streetscapers, for example, whose murals mm -hmm. are all over Boyle Heights. So um, then I went back to Dartmouth for my senior year, and uh, you know that's not a place, of course. It's up in the mountains of New Hampshire, and it's not right. a place that uh, had a, a vibrant Latino studies program. But I really kind of just became passionate about this topic, and um, ended up writing my thesis. And then I, I was still kind of toying with going to law school, maybe. So I worked mm -hmm. for two years after college um, as a paralegal at a big New York law firm, but I quickly learned that law was not for me, corporate law in particular. It's not right. what I wanted to do. If I w were going to pursue law, I would have been at a place much more like Maldef. Right. But um, mm -hmm. to make a long, longer story short, um, <laughs> when I was thinking about other things that I wanted to do, uh, besides law, I remembered that I really, really loved my experience writing my senior thesis about Oscar. And I should say I was also a Mellon Mays undergraduate fellow at Dartmouth. Great. And, yeah. you know, there's a program that encourages um, students to go to graduate school, right. minority students to go to uh, graduate school and pursue PhDs and become academics. So I, I had kind of had that mentorship my father was an academic, as I mentioned, but I also really remembered loving the process of doing research. So pretty quickly, about two years after I graduated from undergrad, I um, started applying to PhD programs, and I chose to go to Yale instead of a place in, in California at the time, you know, um, my advisor, Steve Pitty, had only been in Yale for uh -huh. four years or so. Uh, he he was just beginning to train graduate students. It wasn't one of the places uh, that was kind of more known for right, graduate yeah. students in, in Latino history like Stanford or USC Now or UCLA or something like that, or Texas even, um, or UCSD. And so 
in some ways it was a out of the box decision or a kind of risky, yeah, risky yeah. decision to go to Yale. But um, but I really liked the opportunity to kind of work on Latino studies outside of California because it gave me a slightly different perspective, I think, and um, you know gave me the opportunity to work with a, a broad or train with a broad group of Americanists and Latin Americanists, and I think that ultimately helped uh, helped shape my work too. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. You mentioned that. I mean, studying Latino studies outside of California, it's definitely a question I dealt with as well. And I think many do when they look into going into this, uh, you know, this field as a you know profession, you know, studying that is outside of not just California, but the Southwest in particular, you know, where the, right, the probably right. much more well-known uh, programs are. And of course, Yale is is well known and it's a very prestigious institution but as you mentioned not sure. the place you would you would definitely think of for uh, studying latino studies but uh, in that field right yeah right, in yeah, that way exactly. right and, and Stephen pity of course you know coming yeah. from a that that solid um pedigree yeah, if you will really. you know. i mean i think it's a, it's a it's a place that had been supportive of fields proximate to latino studies so mm-hmm, it has a mm-hmm. long tradition of training in western history exactly right West, which people like Howard Lamar or right. John Farragher now, right. but, exactly. um, you know, it's trained many, many grad students, but it also had a strong Latin Americanist program with Gil Joseph and Stuart Schwartz. And uh, actually, the year that Steve was hired, they also hired um, Andres Resendez, who was there for a short period of time. I didn't overlap with him at all, but there for a short period of time before moving on to UC Davis. So it, it is a place that even if by the early 21st century it hadn't started training in the field of Latino history um, in a big way, it's a, a place, I think, that had supported fields that were related. But, exactly. Uh, but yeah. I think, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there were other kind of more obvious choices for places that that focused on particularly Latino history at the time. Well, and I think, as you mentioned, I mean, just some of the scholars you point out, um, you know, it's definitely a, a very strong uh, place for the study of Western history, perhaps one of the, one of the strongest, mm-hmm. right? And so with the exactly. new push of the new Western history, now Latino studies, all this is, is all part of that. So, uh, sure. yeah, right? So I think that's... And I guess uh, I would just, great. I would highlight or underscore how the work you end up doing does really get shaped by the place where you're studying because... Mm-hmm. It's not that I went to graduate school knowing that I wanted to be a scholar of the U.S.-Mexico borderlands and that I wanted to do transnational research in the United States and Mexico, but I think the way that I ended up piecing my project together was very much influenced by the the people I was working with, the people who worked on the American West, people who worked on uh, Mexico, and people who worked on Latino history. So I think it, it you know, the, the work really reflects how a lot of things come together for you. You're, you're, it kind of reflects your intellectual formation at a place, and I'm sure you and others find that to be true. You right. Too. Yeah, that is that is so true. Well, um, let's so let's get talking about the, the project itself, about standing on common ground. And I'm sure. interested, you've told us a lot of the the background of how you've come to uh, you know pursue a career in academia and and your interest in Latino studies and Latino history. Uh, so, what about this this current project? Um, how did you you know come about to writing you know going back to Tucson, if you will, and and writing yeah. about this borderlands yeah. region? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I've ended up thinking a lot about that since choosing it because it, it felt at the time very much um, 
like a happenstance decision or like a coincidence or uh, an accident, something I didn't plan on doing. Because it was my third dissertation topic. I went wow. to graduate school thinking I was going to write about the cross-border movement of artists between the United States and Mexico from mm -hmm. the end of the Mexican Revolution to the present. And, and as you might imagine, that very much stemmed from the thesis I wrote in undergrad on Osco. But when I was doing research on Osco, uh, some of the artists told me how they had gone down to Mexico City and played rock concerts uh, in Lily Heron's case or um, worked with artists from Mexico City. And then I started learning a lot about the Mexican muralists who came and spent time in New York and Michigan and California and even Dartmouth College. There, there's a famous Jose Clemente Orozco mural. So I started thinking a lot about this history of uh, artists moving back and forth between the United States and Mexico. I still think that would be a really fun project to work on, but um, but my interest shifted, I, I think, in part because I very much became under the influence of a, a new historian at Yale uh, named David Blight, who is a mm -hmm. historian of the U.S. Civil War, and right. he had just written a big book about memory of the Civil War, yes, and, and uh, I just found him to be a really engaging person, and, and this is part of what I mean by how you're kind of shaped by the, the people you're around and that you're, you're spending time with and learning from. So I started thinking that I wanted to do a history of the memory of the U.S.-Mexico War. He had done mm, that for mm -hmm. the Civil War. I wanted to do a history of the memory of the Mexican War from the time that the United States invaded Mexico in 1846 until 1916 when um, General Pershing reinvaded Mexico uh, to hunt for Pancho Villa. And I chose, you know, those two time periods because I think during the late 19th century, the, the loss of Mexico was seen as a kind of transformational moment in the history of Chicanos and Mexican Americans right, in the right. Southwest. So, you know, the way in the the 1860s, 70s, 80s, 90s, Latinos in the, or Chicanos in the Southwest were talking about their relationships to the lost land, all the way really to ideas about lost land and in the 60s and, you know, just other ideas about lost land. And um, that, that too is a dissertation that I, I still think would be interesting for somebody to write, but for me, I didn't know what archives I would look at, um, you know, looking for people mm -hmm. remembering the war um, right. is a kind of needle in a haystack project. I mean, there's mm -hmm, some obvious mm -hmm. places there, battlefield sites, there are monument commemorations, there's there are speeches, there are veterans organizations like the Aztec Club of 1847. So there, there are things that I could have looked at, but um, I, I had spent a, a couple of months kind of fishing around looking for information and was meeting a lot of dead ends. And then I happened to run into uh, the Mexicanist on my committee, a man named Bill Joseph, and he kind of, um, you know, what felt to me at the time like a offhanded remark was like, well, why don't you go out to Tucson and you like Tucson, you're from there, your family lives there, it'd be a nice place for you to live and do some research for um, a while, and I'm sure you could find some interesting things to say about it. And uh, you know, within a few days, I was um, kind of off in the archives of the Arizona Historical Society, mm -hmm. looking for materials and thinking about a dissertation perspective. So, I, you know, by by no means had I gone to graduate school thinking I was going to write about Tucson, but 
it turned out that I, I, I quickly became passionate about the place that I was from. Mm-hmm, and for me, mm-hmm. doing research, and, you know, it was, it was great in the sense that I got to go back to a place that I had visited my whole life, that where my whole family lived. And uh, But, you know, my, my grandparents, for example, live right by the Air Force Base, Davis Mountain Air Force Base. And as a kid, my our, our kind of social world in Tucson was right around the Air Force Base, right around their house. Maybe we explored a little bit further north to places like Park Mall or El Con, but, um, you know, that was that was the limited Tucson that I knew about. So right. the year that I was there doing my dissertation research and, and writing, I felt like I was kind of rediscovering this city that I... Um, you know, th- that really felt like home to me, but I didn't know how to explain why, but uh, I had the opportunity to kind of learn about it on my own terms, not necessarily kind of under the wing of my, my grandparents or my mom, and really in some ways learn about the city in a, a much deeper way than um, than anyone else in my family uh, had at the time. So it, it really felt like a kind of making Tucson my own. So it became a very personal story for me that's that's very neat uh and it resonates with me because it's 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 kind of how i came to my area of study also Mm -hmm. i i just happened to you know be taking a class on i think it was um the history of los angeles was at uc san diego and uh i i only took it because i needed a history class and back then i was thinking oh i'm going to do something on you know as an undergrad revolutionary era or like religion or something you know and Mm -hmm. I took this class and it blew my mind. You know, being a SoCal native, growing up, uh, you know, born in Oxnard and then pretty much raised in a San Diego suburb, I had I hadn't thought about Southern California as a you know f- as a area of academic inquiry. You know, it's not what I mm-hmm. thought of as history. Yeah. It just blew my right. mind. We just live it. Yeah, we right. grow up there and we live it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah, that's right. And so you know, and it, it, I think that that kind of approach to your work in some cases gets dismissed as quote-unquote navel-gazing or, Uh um, you know, people who don't support the project of ethnic studies or they wonder about how representative the history is if, uh, or how unbiased the history is or how objective it is if if your motivations for writing it are deeply personal. But, uh, you know, I I think all histories are more or less personal in the sense that I, I mean agree. even if the book right. even if the book I wrote wasn't about Tucson, if it was about something entirely different, I still think it would have been about Tucson in the sense that, you know, we are all products of where we came from, who taught us, who we grew up with. So, you know, the all of the influences in our lives that help us see the world in in the way that we do, um, really shape our thinking. And and I think that so, you know, even if the book wasn't about Tucson, it would have been about Tucson. So it might as well have been about Tucson. <laughs> right. And and well, also, I mean, um, you know, are the, the places 
growing up in in these places they can see the mo- they can see the most mundane and ordinary uh, but right. uh, yeah, something you know you uncover in this book uh, you can show the you know that you show the deep complexity of this region and really in in a way re- rewrite or at least counter the master narrative that has come to define this region both you know Tucson mm-hmm. Phoenix but then you know the broader borderland and and the way the border yeah. is is currently looked so um, yeah. maybe we can we can shift exactly. gears and, and talk about that sure. and what I'm sure. Initially interested in really is is how you you know bring the discussion of you know borderlands history into the middle of the twentieth century. Um, typically, borderlands is uh, a concept that is used by historians and scholars to analyze what we were talking about earlier periods like the Mexican American War or you know the mid to late nineteenth century, early twentieth century. These these transitions yeah. from different uh, areas of either national or imperial control or initial encounter, things like that. Uh, but the mid twentieth century is, is definitely much. It seems at least a bit more removed from from that era. So. I was wondering yeah. if you could share with us a bit about your understanding of Borderlands history and, and your approach uh, to it. Sure, 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 sure. And and this would be another area in which I would say that I backed into it more than uh, going into it with my eyes open, knowing that that's what I wanted to do as soon as I moved to Tucson. I mean, right. what I knew about Tucson in a historical sense in 2006 and seven when I moved out there was that, you know, it was once again in the national news as the kind of center of the quote-unquote border crisis or mm-hmm. immigration crisis. And there were a lot of humanitarian aid groups like No More Debts and Border Links and uh, Los Samaritanos and Derechos Humanos kind of working on immigration issues. And I knew that, and that was my my entry point into this project. I mean, I started I started by going out there and just seeing what I found, but immediately, uh, so that was the kind of public public discourse about Tucson, or what you would see on the, the nightly news if you lived there, but, um, but then, you know, when you go into the archives at the Arizona Historical Society or the Arizona State Library, what you're immediately hit with is this very different history of kind of cross-border exchange and collaboration. You have, um, you know, customs brokers uh, importing vegetables and Mexican crafts. You have department store owners who rely on business from Mexico. You have, uh, you know, just a, a pervasive sense of Sonoran culture um, shaping Tucson. So, you know, to me, there was my kind of entry point into the project was just noticing this disjuncture between what you hear about Tucson and what you see in the archives. So that's the the kind of thread I started to pull on and just pursue. And I think that that is the was the kind of point of departure for all of my case studies and all of my interests when doing research. So when I went to Tucson, what I thought I was doing was not writing post-World War II borderlands history, I thought I was going to maybe be telling a sequel to Tom Sheridan's book, Los Tucsonenses, which was just a kind of social history of Tucson's Mexican-American community from um, the period after the U.S.-Mexico War until the eve of World War II, so to Mm -hmm. 1941. And I thought I might be telling a sequel to Sam Truitt's book, Forgotten, uh, 
Oh boy, I'm drawing on my forgotten landscapes. Fugitive landscapes. Fugitive landscapes, not forgotten landscapes. Yeah, so uh, man, I was going to be in big trouble if I didn't remember (laughs) the name of that book. But, um, you know, that book ends in the 1920s, and so I thought maybe I was doing a sequel to that. But then there were other people working on post-World War II Tucson, uh, like Lidia Otero at the University of Arizona, who wrote a book about urban renewal in in Tucson in particular. And so there were people working around it. So originally I, I just went out trying to find what my um, kind of niche within the field of Mexican American history of Tucson would be. But I kept coming back to all of these histories of exchange and, and culture and commerce and um, educational exchange programs and, and public art controversies that related to the kind of Mexican character of the region. So I started thinking of myself more and more as a transnational borderlands historian. And, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I backed into it, in other words. So then, you know, right. once I once I had all the archive and the materials, you start thinking about, only then do you start thinking about how to frame your project and what are right. the larger scholarly conversations you want to have. And I did notice that uh, much of the borderland scholarship um, focused on the period before the 1930s, say, um, when restrictive immigration laws were passed, when the right, border patrol right. uh, was formed, when um, hundreds of thousands of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were deported from the Southwest during the um, Great Depression. So, you know, that fit, those kinds of stories fit with the borderlands history of the kind of consolidation of nation states, the um, early 20th century militarization of the U.S.-Mexico border during the Mexican Revolution, and and there was this kind of narrative about the hardening of the border. You know, there was the big essay by um, Jeremy Adelman and Stephen Aaron uh, from Mm -hmm. Borderlands to Borders. Mm Mm-hmm. And to me, that just felt like this. So, so if that's true, and and you know, they they are careful to qualify what they're saying about the early 20th century by saying that it's not that all forms of cross-border movement and exchange uh, ended, mm-hmm. but by the early 20th century, the sovereignty of the United States was no longer contested. Mm-hmm. Borders weren't right. being reformed or anything like that. So it started. It it just caused me to start thinking, like, well, okay. I mean, if you know, what what does borderlands history become um, after the supposed closing of the U.S.-Mexico border? It felt to me like a very kind of teleological reading of border uh, right. border history that suggested that okay, well, a borderland a borderland turns into a border and then it remains a border um, from there on out. And, you know, I, I think I was, I have been, this book hadn't been published at the time um, that I was writing my book, but a book by Michael Deere called uh, Why Fences Won't Work or Why Walls Won't Work. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a kind of urban planner and a social geographer at UC Berkeley. And he has a, a chapter that at the very end that just points out, you know, all walls have fallen at some point or another, mm-hmm. you know, like the, mm-hmm. the, the Great Wall of China or others, you know, all walls have fallen. And there's no reason to believe that this wall 
between the United States and Mexico won't fall also. So I just started thinking a lot about the, the ways in which the U.S.-Mexico border was still a point of exchange and um, and uh, cultural relationships and family relationships. And it was still something that um, Borderlands residents, tourists, students, others negotiated it on a, a daily basis. So I think those were my two overriding concerns, the fact that the story you hear about Tucson didn't match what I was finding in archives in terms of like cultural and commercial exchanges on the one hand, and then this sense that you know there was more to be said about the border in a later period beyond the 1920s and 1930s. I think that's how I ended up getting into it right that's great and i I particularly appreciate how it was you know your research in the archives that got you to to really question how Mm -hmm. the the media represented the border and how you kind of had gone back to tucson was reflected in your life there but then as you mentioned in the 2007 2008 ish era how you know, this region becomes a real hotbed of uh, immigrant yeah. uh, immigration, um, or is it reform uh, mm-hmm. politics mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, anti-immigration sentiment, anti-immigrant sentiment and, yeah. you know, American yeah. nationalism. And so all of that starts mm-hmm. to reach a fever pitch at the time that you're in the archives and start to say, wait a second, right? This, yeah, this is interesting. Right, exactly. Yeah, so it was kind of fortuitous in that way. This was, this was uh, you know, even two or three years before uh, Jan Brewer signed SB 1070. Right. So I think, and, and that, of course, after that happened, I mean, that put even more fuel uh, into, or lit even more of a fire under me to kind of get the project done and see even more clearly the kind of stakes of the project. So, so yeah, you know, I, I always joke a little bit that things that are terrible for Arizona happen to be good for business for me, you know, because it gives me <laughs> plenty to talk about and plenty to... Um, plenty to help me conceive of the, the importance of my project and also things to, to really motivate me, you know, to, to, to keep me thinking about how the work I'm doing relates to contemporary conversations or current events or things that are important and relevant today. Right, right. When talking about the archive, it makes me think about your sources. And can you dis- discuss mm-hmm. a bit about the sources that you stumbled upon and that became really important to your work that both gave you this new transnational perspective of this and uh, of this region and really start to conceptualize it as a a fluid, you know, border uh, of a fluid region of, you know, cross border exchange. Yeah, sure. Um, so I've only written one dissertation and I don't know, I therefore don't know how all other dissertations get written and how others think of their sources. So I can only explain my experience, but I kind of think of the sources that I used and relied on heavily as a kind of hodgepodge of all kinds of different things. I feel like my approach to archives was to to not to, to just go in with a really open mind about what I might find, what kinds of materials I, I would use. Um, I would kind of just use anything I could get my hands on that felt relevant or important to me. On the one hand, that wasn't um, a time-saving approach. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I spent <laughs> a lot of time probably following false leads or, um, you know, trails that leads that didn't really go anywhere, you know, and, right. and one of my 
dissertation advisors liked to distinguish between high-concept dissertations and low-concept dissertations. Uh -huh. And what he meant by that is a, a high-concept dissertation is an idea, and then you go try to prove the idea with sources that you find. And a right. low-concept a low-concept project is a project where um, you find a source base that you want to write about, and then mm -hmm. you think of something interesting to say about those sources. And I think more than anything, my project probably went against his advice that all dissertators should write low-concept projects because their dissertations are projects that, you know, we need to have archival sources. We need to be able to complete our dissertations in a couple of years, ideally, so we can get out on the job market in a mm. kind of timely fashion and finish our dissertations. But I didn't have a kind of specific archive that I uh, knew I was going to look at. So there were a lot of different archives that I knew that I wanted to see. So there were important moments along the way, sources that I found, sources or founts of material or uh, different libraries that I learned that I needed to visit. So um, all of that's a long introduction to how I thought of my sources. And I, I think the things, though, that ended up being most useful to me were the Arizona Historical Society, the mm -hmm. University of Arizona Special Collections Library, the Arizona State Library in uh, Phoenix, which houses all of the, well, I should say most of the governor's uh, papers, the Arizona Historical Foundation at um, Arizona State University, which has the Goldwater Papers and then uh, the papers of a couple of other Arizona governors from the mid-20th century. Those are all the libraries in, in Arizona. Then there are the kind of National Archives materials in both College Park, Maryland, and um, Southern California, mm -hmm. the NARA, the local NARA branches. And then, of course, in Mexico, there's the um, AHSRE, the Archivo Historico of um, the Foreign Relations Secretariat of Mexico. Then there was the Archivo General de la Nación, um, the, the National Archives. And then there were all the state archives in Sonora at the um, University of Sonora, at the Colegio de Sonora, um, the Sala del Noroeste in Mexico at the University of Sonora, and then the kind of institutional archives at the University of Sonora. And also, you know, they, they housed these wonderful newspaper, um, the Medotecas newspaper archives for Sonoran newspapers. So these are all the places I did research. I think newspapers were incredibly helpful to me. I, I kind of did a full scan of the of El Imparcial and of Sonorense to Sonoran newspapers. Um, the family papers of uh, the department store owner, Alex Hakome, became mm -hmm, mm -hmm. incredibly important to me. And in many ways, um, you know, following that story opened up a lot of doors to me as well, just because, or not doors, but avenues of research, right. I would say, because... He was just such an interesting character, and in many ways, you know, I, I ended up building a lot of the story that I told around him. He's a kind of uh, character that appears in all of the chapters. I was originally thinking of just the only chapter about him would be the department store chapter, but then mm -hmm. the more I got into his materials, he was very involved in the planning of La Fiesta de los Vaqueros. He was right. very involved um, as a, a member of the Board of Regents of the University of Arizona. His family even supported the um, 
bringing of the Pancho Villa statue to Tucson, and uh, he was a member of the draft boards during World War II. So I could pull his story both um, forward from this chapter about his store and uh, further along in time toward, until his death in 1980. So his family papers became really important. Um, to and just, so I, I feel like I'm not giving you a very concise answer because I really do think that I looked at all kinds of things. It was a combination of, um, you know, government documents and national archives, family papers, uh, newspaper clippings from the rodeo committees, governor's papers, right. uh, all kinds of things, photographs, movies. But no, I think, you know, that's really reflective in your, your study because it, you know, you pull from a number of these materials and it, that's what really contributes to adding, I think, the, the, the depth and richness to it, uh, where you really start to see a, a true social history of this region. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, but also what you're describing, you know, the, the formation or emergence of this Sunbelt borderland region between Arizona and Sonora really becomes, you know, reflected by these, these, you know, particular characters that you've just started to mention. I mean, so exactly. you have Alex, uh, Hakome. Is that how you said you pronounce yeah. it? Hakome? Hakome with an accent on Hakome. the first. Yeah. Okay, and also Ignacio Soto is another one, right? Yeah, and yeah, so it exactly. seems like these two figures are you. You reflect back to them. You refer back to them throughout the the narrative of of your book. Uh, so, can you talk a little bit more about how these these figures and, and others, you know, are, are representative of the the people and the institutions that that really promoted the the idea of this, uh, you know, Sunbelt region? Sure. Sure. I think um, Alex Hakoman, Ignacio Soto, and the, the social and political and business relationship they formed really did become representative of the kind of um, boosters of the Sunbelt borderland who I right. think he is most, in, in many ways, responsible for the, the growth of a Sunbelt borderland. And again, you know, something I, I will keep uh, talking about is how. I, by, by focusing on men like Sotan Hakome, I don't at all mean to discount the, the work of agricultural laborers or construction workers or, or um, the, the ranchers who, in other ways, really did build the southern Arizona and northern Sonora. You know, they're, they're very important parts of the story, too. But um, in terms of the kind of ideology and the, the concept of, of the world that people like Hakome and Soto wanted to see created or brought, you know, introduced as a reality um, in the area, I I really think they're kind of central to the endeavor. And um, they were also people who were kind of members of all of these broader institutions like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. La Alianza Hispano-Americana, like the Rotary Club and the Rotary Club International, like chambers of commerce on both sides of the border. Um, They were the heads of businesses like department stores and uh, concrete companies in Sonora. They they were kind of at the center of so much of um, regional cross-border economic development and therefore became, you know, really representative for me. And they were ways, really, you know, I said I'm so, I'm interested in, I was interested in such a broad range of things and uh, I, I focused on a hodgepodge of 
uh, events and episodes and looked at a whole bunch of materials, but I, I, I do see the story as being anchored in the lives and careers of people like um, Alex Hakome and Ignacio Soto. And then, um, you know, something I wish that I'd done more of in the book is develop the, the kind of social history of their successors in the 70s and mm-hmm. 80s because there's still, you know, there's still people like them. I mean, I do think they in some ways represent a, a bygone era in the sense that, you know, they, they existed in this context of Pan-Americanism and, um, you know, the good neighbor policy and a, a general larger spirit of international cooperation. And, and that world, um, at least in terms of, the, the public debate about U.S.-Mexico relations ha- is, by and large, a bygone world. You know, I mean, we, we focus much more on the, the, the drug trade and the cartels right, right. and um, undocumented immigration. The, those issues have come to define U.S.-Mexico relations. Nevertheless, there are still people like them. I mean, there are Hispanic chambers of commerce in Arizona that are all about developing um, economic relationships with Sonora. There are Sonoran tourism bureaus that have offices in Arizona. The uh, Nogales port of entry is still expanding and expanding all the time to accommodate the ever greater flow of vegetables, uh, winter vegetables across the U.S.-Mexico border. So there's still, um, you know, there, there are deep kind of business and political networks linking Arizona and Sonora that I think I could have explored much more into the present um, than I did. And, and so I wish I could have done that. But, um, but yeah, I do think that these two people really, or people like them, two of the members of the Alianza and the Chambers of Commerce, really do anchor, uh, anchor the study that I, that I did. Well, definitely. And it, particularly, you, you discuss... Uh, the cha- you mentioned here the Chambers of Conver- Commerce uh, and other types of business and civic organizations. The interesting thing is, is in in your story, what initially or to most, at least like to me, I'll say that seem like these are local institutions, right? These are local organizations that generally, right. primarily have you right. know, local community concerns. But what your narrative shows, and this is what I think is is really fascinating, um, is that these local organizations and institutions really had transnational goals and and visions and really understood this region and their futures as dependent upon commerce, communication, uh, relations, tourism, all of that between, you know, Arizona and and Sonora. Exactly. And some of the, some of what you're talking about is unique to Arizona and it's part of how I tell my story, but I do think that it's true of lots of other communities as well. And, and basically what I'm talking about is the fact that no community can exist in isolation and without a relation to other places. Right. So, you know, Arizona boosters, they live in the middle of the desert and they're always thinking about how to, despite their kind of seemingly unlikely economic success, they're always thinking about, okay, how do we capitalize on the place where we're at? And how do we make our seemingly disadvantageous location actually advantageous to us? And Mm -hmm. I think in many ways, the best card that Arizona has to play is its relationship to Mexico. And I think that uh, boosters, white boosters, uh, Barry Goldwater, I think people like that, people you wouldn't expect 
to hear this message coming from understand that the best thing they have going for them in many ways is their relationship to Arizona so or to, to Sonora. So, you know, they, they think about the development of an integrated port, rail, and airplane distribution link. So whereby, you know, goods would come from China to uh, Guaymas in the Sea of Cortez and the port in Guaymas would come to compete with the port in Long Beach or Los Angeles and uh, then goods would be shipped by train from the port in Guaymas to Tucson where they would then kind of reach the world by airplane. So, you know, Arizona businessmen and, and political leaders are always thinking about the advantage to be gained from their relationship to Sonora. I don't think that is what distinguishes them from businessmen and politicians in other places. I think, you know, Rahm Emanuel today in Chicago is talking about Chicago as a, a you know, a global city and LA is always thinking about opening to Asia. And so, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of places are also doing this, but I think each place has its regional variations, you know, and so in Arizona's case, the thing that it plays up is its cowboy culture, the the kind of Sonoran architecture and cuisine. That, those are its kind of regional distinctions and the regional language that people like Hakome and Soto develop as the way that they can make their regional region profitable. You know, all of that happens, of course, in concert with all the other things historians have talked about, like the chambers of commerce in Arizona promoting right-to-work laws uh, that would create favorable business climates to military defense industries, that all of those are also explanations, the kind of favorable business climate that the Arizona state legislature creates. Those are also explanations for how um, how the region, the Sun, Sun Belt borderland, as I call it, becomes profitable, but you know, I think the the kind of regional distinctiveness of relationships to Mexico, cattle cultures, um, you know, things like that, those also become in some ways the, the kind of coin of the realm or the trading card that Arizona and Sonora businessmen and politicians have. Definitely. And, you know, one thing I was thinking of while, while you're talking to is the – the uniqueness uh, well, I don't know if uniqueness is the right words but the the importance of the, this historical context you know this post-World War II era where um, regions this is why you discuss you know this borderlands regions also with this in the Sun Belt context where you have regions like this that are transforming as a result of receiving massive federal investment it's spurring population growth suburbanization right urbanization all these things are kind of coming together at, the, at this exactly. you know, in, in these different locales, you know, throughout, uh, whether it's Southern California yep. or the Southwest or into the other parts of the, the South, right? And mm-hmm. uh, so what I start, what I really start to interest me uh, and you discuss in this book is, you know, this, this emergence, the emergence of this real booster mentality that is making sense of both a romanticized and idealized past while really yeah. focusing on modernization, right? That's a lot of what you're, yeah. you're discussing in this book is, you know, the, the modern push to develop this region. Um, and that, right. that happens on a number right. of levels. Can you, can you talk about that? You know, this particularly yeah. this, you know, this regional focus on modernization and the types of yeah. people that it brought together. Yeah, that is, that's really interesting. I mean, of course I thought about that when I, was writing, but I didn't. I didn't necessarily think of it as the you know some of the 
bigger stakes of the project or something like that. But I do think that I don't, you know, I don't know the literature of modernization and development as well as I should, and uh, considering that I, you know, rely on those concepts a lot in my um, my book. So I don't know how unique what I'm saying is about modernization and development. But I do think that it became really important. I think what what business people in Tucson and Hermosillo realized was that by modernizing and, you know, moving Arizona into the future, they knew that they couldn't do that without bringing something from the past with them, you know? So they weren't totally abandoning the the ranching and agriculture and the cowboy persona or something that so many um, mid to late 20th century Arizona politicians adopted. They kind of knew, um, as, as Sam Truitt put it in his book, Fugitive Landscapes, they, they kind of knew that references to tradition and regional identity were what Sam called the, the language of power in a particular place. You know, it's how um, business people would kind of... Um, craft their self-image. They would do so by wearing cowboy hats or attending the rodeo or, mm-hmm. you know, going to the Mexican beach town of uh, Rocky Point and, and seaports like Weimar. So they knew that in order to advance their economic interests and therefore uh, accomplish like the modernization of the state, that they had to constantly refer and place themselves within the context of local and regional traditions. It's kind of how they saw themselves and it's how they got a, got ahead. I don't know, like I said, I don't know if that's a kind of, um, you know, important insight in the field of modernization and, and development, but I do think that it's what was going on in Arizona and Sonora. And it is, I mean, it, regional identity is the kind of language that, as you said, brought so many different groups of people together, you know, people like Alex Hakome, but also people like Barry Goldwater, you know, the, right. the kind of son of a, of a long-time Jewish merchant family that changes its name from Goldwasser to Goldwater because they don't want to be associated uh, or, or thought of as Jewish in the region, and they, too, open up department stores and, you know, know that they need to kind of embrace local and regional culture in order to further their business and political interests. So I think, you know, I think part of what you're pointing out is that my book puts a lot of those things together in conversation, like, um, you know, the, the ways in which that instead of, you know, seeing Barry Goldwater as a, as a businessman or a politician, I think that all of these things were part of him and people like Hakome together. So the, their common reference to regional culture is exactly the thing that helped them advance their business and political careers. It wasn't a kind of isolated part of them. Right, right. And it, it that goes, I think, back to uh, reflect your interest in you know historical memory. 
Right. And it's mm-hmm. something that the, mm-hmm. I, sure. I see playing out throughout the book as you get the emergence of s- certain types of regional celebrations like uh, La Fiesta in Tucson, which is, you know, you see a number of those throughout other parts of the, mm-hmm. the, the broader borderlands. Los Angeles had one right in early yeah. 20th century, and it, it became this way of, um, number one, right, boosting a region, promoting uh, economic development, but also re-envisioning the past. And, um, yeah. You know, uh, in doing so along a a new or the emergent racial uh, ethno-racial hierarchy, because as mm-hmm. it's something that you mentioned in this book and you describe is that part of the development of this region and this this explosive population boom. So part of the people that are moving here, you have of course migration that's coming uh, north and south of the border of you know Mexicans, ethnic Mexicans, and and even Native Americans. Sure. But there's also mm-hmm. a large influx of whites to this area. Yeah. And that that, yeah. Tr- that transforms the the society, the business, right, the politics of the region. Yeah, totally. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the remaking of regional culture. So that's, you know, it relates to the question of what you would call this history. Is it social history in the sense that it's a history of people? Is it cultural history in the sense that it's, you know, about rodeos and public art controversies? Is it um, borderlands history in that it's about the border? Or is it, you know, the biography of a region, you know, and the Mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. regional, the the transformation of a regional identity. And I think those kinds of ideas about the transformation of regional identity and how culture and regional identity get remade after the influx of, you know, the the kind of demographic of transformation or transformation of Tucson from being a, you know, primarily Mexican-American and Native American region to being one where the dominant population, both in numerical terms and political terms, is white, um, you know, what what happens? What does that look like? How does that happen? And I think those questions were as much influenced by, you know, people like your uh, mentor, Bill Deverell, whose book Whitewashed Adobe was mm-hmm. really influential in my thinking. And, and as, you know, people like that or people like Lydia Otero who write about the, the kind of new cultural fashioning of the city in the wake of urban renewal um, or Eric Avila's popular culture in the age of white flight or, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Matt Garcia's a world of their own, you know, like what I think a lot of, a lot of Latino historians or borderlands historians have written about the transformation of regional identity. And I think that, you know, those aspects of my book were very much influenced by their work. Well, and it certainly is, I think, an, a, an interesting uh, part of the, the narrative and something that uh, you're able to see transition throughout. Because as you mentioned, right, these are, this is um, both the, the the creation and the transformation of a regional identity. You, you, you point out how mm-hmm. an identity existed beforehand, you know, through to, you know, due to these cross-border relations that mm-hmm. uh, involved, you know, kinship relations and other types of business relations and, and things of that sorts, but how this is a moment in particular where it really starts to transform in different ways, and, and that's a, definitely yeah. a really fascinating part of, of the book. Yeah, and it happens in, in uneven ways, you know, that's the thing. It's not like it, it's not like it just, the, the transition is simply a story of, you know, the loss of Mexican and Native American right. culture, though, you know, that is part of it with the reinvention of the rodeo and it's, you know, the movement away from Mexican ranching culture to, you know, largely Anglo-operated industrial mm-hmm. cattle ranching. It's not simply that kind of movement from one to the other. It's just kind of a 
just a, a mix. Things get more complicated rather than simplified. Definitely. And can you, we, let's do that. Will you talk a little bit more maybe about how the, the, the transformations of the, you know, the post-war era, we've talked a bit about uh, the business and politicians and, you know, these are kind of the, the initial drivers of um, this new Sunbelt type of vision, regional identity and vision. But will you tell me how this, you know, these transformations played out for ethnic Mexicans and, you know, working class Mexicans, Mexican Americans, uh, you know, the migrants that are crossing the border, as well as something that I think is just a fascinating part of the book is, you know, the presence of Native Americans from the, is it the, the home Odom? Is it, am I saying that right? Um, the Odom, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, yeah. So their presence is is really and really complicates this whole area, and I think really in that sure. it makes it just really distinctive, and I think really inter- interesting to have a an indigenous uh, population that has had also these relations and experiences that you know predate the formation of this border, and and you know so they're dealing with these transformations as well, you know, uh, both the modernizing yeah. push, the formation mm-hmm. of the border, and, and maintaining their own type of cultural ties. So can you speak to that? Right. How how are these other groups affected? You know, during these, you know, the decades of the 40s, 50s, 60s, yeah. and yeah, I mean, this is a huge question, and I, I you know, I'm, and I'm thinking that, you know, they're they're really simple stories that I'm trying to tell, or seemingly very simple stories that I'm trying to tell, and then there are stories that get increasingly complicated. So, the simple stories you might think of are, say, the the transformation of a regional economy from. Um, you know, one that's largely dependent on agriculture, um, on federal subsidies, mm-hmm. on military-industrial complex, those kinds of things, mm-hmm. to regional economies that are more dominated by service and tourism and, right. um, you know, cheap wage labor of Mexicans, those kinds of things. So that's the one, the kind of political economy of the place changes mm-hmm. over time. Then you have these other changes from what I call like the making of the Sunbelt borderland to the unmaking of the Sunbelt borderland, right. where, you know, um, the kind of world imagined by people like Paco Soto begins to crumble in the 70s because of, um, you know, global economic the rise of undocumented immigrants or um, the, the, you know, increasing nativism that in many ways was a result of uh, declining economies. That's another kind of story that, um, a simple story, if you want to think of it like that in my story that I try to tell, that these kinds of things form the narrative arc of the story. But then, so what happens to all the people? I mean, this, this is where it gets really complicated because this borderland story I'm telling, of course, intersects with, um, you know, the just a broader story of civil rights activism that mm-hmm. we already know about. So we have Chicanos at the University of Arizona who form Mecha chapters and who, you know, um, walk out of Tucson high schools uh, to protest the lack of representation of Mexican-American teachers and Students and the, the poor representation of Mexican Americans and Native Americans at the University of Arizona. You have all these, those things, kind of, and that's a story we know, right? I mean, that in many ways is the story of um, Chicano history during the 60s and 70s: the student activism, the anti-war protests, the um, labor strikes on behalf of agricultural workers. That's the stuff we know. But um, you know, what does that look like? 
when there are groups of Chicanos on campus who, or, you know, I shouldn't even say Chicanos because they explicitly didn't think of themselves as Chicanos. These mm-hmm. are the people mm-hmm. who fall more in line with the, the Hakomez ideology or the ideology of an older generation that looked at the student protest as kind of rabble-rousing, right? Or just students at the University of Arizona who no way, in no way identified as Chicanos. They would even right. kind of dismiss what Chicanos were doing as not real activism because they were actually organizing mine workers. So they were doing real work on behalf of um, on behalf of Mexican workers instead of, uh, you know, protesting in the streets. So there were all those kinds of rifts within the community and divisions. And, you know, at the same time, there's the uh, burgeoning American Indian movement and mm-hmm. um, changes on the reservation where, you know, um, within Native American history where, uh, you know, termination and relocation programs are going on and uh, ideas about Native American economic development on reservations are, are kind of unfolding at the same time as um, the Chicano movement and all these kind of complicated stories that are all unfolding in the same place, but it's not easy to tell the same kind of simple story that I was telling in, in other ways in the book. So I think, you know, you could, that, that's, that's a kind of underlying tension within the book, the tension between these kind of simple narrative arc stories, how we get from A to, to Z, what are the major transformations um, of the regional political economy, and then what are all of the complicated community and social histories that are going on on the ground. I don't know that I ever kind of satisfactorily resolved those tensions, but I think in the stories I told, I at least demonstrated an awareness that, you know, we needed to balance the narrative arc questions and the, the change over time questions with just the kind of very complicated social dynamics of life on the ground for communities. Well, yeah, I mean, you do, and you do a great job of that. And I think, uh, you know, part of what you're, you're talking about here is the tension that a lot of historians deal with, right? The, the, when we're, we're writing uh, a history and when you're trying to explain uh, a what is very a, a what is a really a rich and complex history involving a number of ethnic and racial groups and types of um, interests and histories that merge from many from social business political interests cultural movements all these things are going on in this region and and that's what happens right I mean that's what history is that's what yeah. happens in in that's places and locales yeah. all throughout not just our mm-hmm. our country but you know throughout the world and and so what historians right. what we're trying to do which what is so hard yeah. is try to tell these very complex rich histories yeah. in a form of a in a narrative arc that makes sense uh, yeah right? exactly so that that is the trick. I mean, I think that's the hardest part of any uh, the, of, of any of the work that we'll do, really, right? Like, we, we spend years doing research, learning so much about the complicated histories of a, a region, and then our task is to somehow simplify it and put it in a form that's digestible for mm-hmm. readers. And so, you know, I think this also relates to the question of... Um, well, so let me first say the, the way I did that, of course, is by by making some decisions about, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm looking at all kinds of things, but my case studies are fairly contained. I mean, it all happens 
through the lens of a rodeo, a department store, a public art controversy, university exchanges. So mm-hmm. I think those case studies in many ways helped me contain an otherwise very complicated picture, you know? So I think, I think the, they at least give the appearance that it's a contained history and a neat history in the sense that it's about these particular case studies and it all, they all one, in one way or another fit into this broader narrative arc about the making and unmaking of a Sunbelt borderland. So that was a way to do it. But I, I think this also relates to other questions I get about, you know, regional comparisons between mm-hmm. Arizona and other places and, right. um, you know, how do I know about, you know, how, how, how might my argument about the making of a Sunbelt borderland play out elsewhere? And that's, that's why I usually say, well, you know, um, on the one hand, I, I think this was a decision I made to kind of go deep into one region instead of, I think, you know, forcing myself to compare Tucson and Arizona and Sonora with other regions would have necessarily made um, made that work more superficial if I'd compared it to other places because mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I would have had to sacrifice depth for what right. I gained in breadth. Right. So that's one answer. But I also think that, you know, that could be one future task for historians, you know, of the same period. They could kind mm-hmm. of apply some of the ideas to other areas. And in some ways, I think the story would look the same because you, you do have, you know, military industrial development in places throughout the Southwest, like El Paso and Albuquerque and San Diego, and uh, this is all happening during the World War II era and beyond. You also have, um, you know, the the way that PRONAF, the Programa Nacional Fronterizo, or the, uh, you know, the Maquiladoras, or just changing immigration patterns within Mexico to the U.S.-Mexico border region, all of those things are, are happening in similar ways all along the border, but um, but I think, you know, the regional distinctiveness of, of the cowboy culture, of, um, you know, the, the particular forms of cross-border commerce, like the fact that 50% of all winter vegetables imported from Mexico to Arizona or to the United States enter through Arizona. I think there are those kinds of regional particularities that make the story unique, even though it's playing out in this broader borderlands context in other places too, like California and Texas. No, certainly. And I think that's uh, that's part of the, the, the emerging scholarship that's coming forward in borderland studies um, is this deepening understanding of the regional distinctiveness of the border mm-hmm. and particular border regions. Yeah. And it's something that, uh, it's again, it seems it's been developing over the last, I don't know, handful of years or so. We see a, a number of books that are coming out that are narrowing on, mm-hmm. on particular parts of the border and examining kind of what you do in, in different frames, right? I mean, different time frames, mm-hmm. you know, these relationships mm-hmm. emerging mm-hmm. and these, these transformations that are occurring. So, um, yeah. you know, I think you maybe, maybe you read a little bit too hard on, on your own work, but I think it adds very much uh, to this conversation mm-hmm. in Latino studies and borderland scholarship uh, you know, as a whole. So we need more well, works has, like this. I do and, too. I do too. But I do think it is an aspect of borderland history that um, has been critiqued uh, kind of most importantly by people like Pekka Hamelin and then Sam Truitt in their um, introductory article mm-hmm. to the September 2011 
issue of the Journal of American History in which they argue that, you know, what Borderlands history is now is basically a compilation of particular case studies of particular areas, but there's no kind of um, synthetic history of Borderlands in North America. So, you know, maybe we'll build there, but I I do agree with you that there's still (laughs) so much more to do in in particular places before we can even think of of a synthesis, maybe. Right, right. Well, and that brings me to uh, what is traditionally our our last question or closing question on, on the uh-huh. New Books channel, which is, uh, I wonder what it is it what is it that you're working on now? Yeah, so I'll try to be very quick about this because uh, I know I've talked too much about all kinds of other things. But it's, <laughs> quickly, I'm, I'm working on a long great. history of Latino conservatism. So mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. again, not surprisingly, I think this is a trend of my work. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of build on prior research interests. And in this case, um, my interest in Latino conservatism emerged from um, the work that I did about the Mexican-American department store owner in Arizona who just kind of struck me as a, a, a total curiosity and right. challenged so much of what I knew about uh, Mexican-American history. So we know mm-hmm. about the Cubans, uh, the Cuban exiles and Cuban-Americans and Miami, and we think of them as the sole representatives of Latino conservatism. So right. Through, um, you know, encountering this man, Alex Hockelman in Arizona, I came to recognize that Latino conservatism is just a much broader regional, national, international phenomenon Indeed. than mm-hmm. we understand. So uh, that's, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> No, and that sounds fascinating, and that was definitely something I was very interested to read. And when I was reading that, that particular chapter on Hakome and, and his politics, and um, and I've, yeah. I've encountered some of that in my own in my own research. That you know, uh, Mexican Americans, uh, they're uh, even into the the thirties, the forties, and all this. Uh, their uh, political uh, aspirations and ideologies were, were were very multifaceted, you know, to say the least. Totally, you know, they're they conservatives. They were radicals. They were leftists. Yeah, they were all sorts. Your project of on Orange County. I mean, you're gonna. I guarantee you, you're gonna you're gonna find some of these guys. I know you will. Well, definitely, and we'll see. We'll have to. We'll compare notes, and uh, we'll talk more about that. Yeah. Hey, yeah, well, exactly. Geraldo, I appreciate your time and uh, for, for taking some time out of your day to speak with us about your book. I encourage sure. our listeners to, to get it, to read it, to discuss it with others. Again, this is Standing on Common Ground, The Making of a Sunbelt Borderland. Uh, Geraldo Calava, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you, DJ. I had a lot of fun talking to you. Take care.